Three simple letters, but together they tell a much bigger story. You can't have a conversation about investing in 2022 without touching on the importance of environmental, social and governance. How has ESG become as prominent as it is today? As investment interest grows, what does ESG really mean? Is it a niche investment category or is it all-encompassing? And how will these three letters continue to impact business operations and investor attitudes across the world? To help answer these questions and more and make good things happen, we have Cities Davida Heller, recently promoted to Head of Sustainability Strategy at City, and Harlan Singh, Global Head of Sustainable Investing at City Global Wealth Management. Before we do that, let's start by getting to know a little bit more about Harlan and Davida. Davida, let's start with you first. Thank you, Jorian. Really excited to be here with you and Harlan. I have been at City for eight years now. Okay, so when you were at junior school and they asked you what you wanted to be, did you say head of sustainability strategy at City? Was that your goal or did you want to be an astronaut? Absolutely not. I wanted to be a film producer. That was my initial dream and my first career. Okay, so as a debutant on our podcast, you're one step closer to that. And how about you, Harlan? What did you want to do when you were first starting out and thinking about your way in the world? Well, back in junior school, I would say I wanted to be an attorney and follow in my father's footsteps. I never quite had that as my first career, Davida, as you have, but certainly a part of the everyday life here at City. And uh, tell us both, I'll start with you, Harlan, about your journey to City, because you've both got really impressive backgrounds in this area. What brought you to City and the world of sustainability? Yeah. So, you know, I started my career over 20 years ago now um, in the financial markets, in sales and trading, actually, in the foreign exchange market. So very far away from sustainability, but very much focused on global macroeconomics, thinking about kind of opportunities of growth. At the time when I started emerging markets, particularly Asia, you know, seeing tremendous amounts of growth and tremendous amounts of opportunity. So I did that a little over a decade um, and then left to really pursue how and where and if finance could actually have a positive good in the world and drive some change. Um, volunteering and social service have been a part of my DNA since I was old enough to walk. Fun fact, uh, in, in our culture, you know, my dad's big thing was you're not to get a job. So I was one of very few in high school who did not work, but I volunteered at a senior's home throughout high school. I created and taught a class for autistic children. So service became a part of my DNA. And so trying to figure out this roadmap, I actually went back to grad school after about 12 years in the industry and pursued a master's in public administration. And after that, went on to the Milken Institute in beautiful, sunny Santa Monica, California. Uh, did not have to convince me too much to move out there and um, worked in innovative finance. So really worked with the public and private sector players, high net worth individuals, as well as large institutional investors. So pension funds, foundations, endowments in determining how financial capital can be invested in a way to meet environmental and social goals for these organizations. So unwittingly, that was a perfect path for what you're doing now. Davida, tell us about your, your most recent past and how you got to your new role. Yeah, so I started out in film. When I was in college, I started working in television production and I caught the bug. I absolutely loved it and was really inspired by the idea of telling stories and just was obsessed with film. 
So I moved out to LA right after college and had a fantastic stint in uh, the entertainment industry. I worked at a talent agent with amazing people. I worked at a um, film studio. I worked for a few production companies and really enjoyed that period in my life and met incredible people. But there was always something nagging at me. I had always been very interested in environmental issues. And at that point, there wasn't really an interest of integrating environmental issues and stories into the content. And so I decided I would just take a break and really explore that side of my interest and passion. And I completely made a shift and really focused on energy efficiency and home performance analysis and kind of found this new calling working with people in their homes and lifestyles to help them understand how they can integrate more sustainable aspects into their family life. So I I went through that I took off at that point in my career and created a very small consulting company and started to work with clients in this space. And then there was a little rift in the economy. The economy went through quite a a bad time. And I actually had to shift my focus more to the corporate sector, which was actually quite a blessing in disguise because I really realized the importance of the business case. I had kind of been in this area of work that focused more on altruism. And I started to realize the importance of thinking through how do you integrate sustainable considerations into how you do business. And it really became this completely new passion and interest for me. And I I went on this journey and started doing a little bit of consulting there, came back to New York eventually and decided to go to grad school at Columbia for sustainability management, a program that they had just started. I had the opportunity to intern at City. And if you would have told my 22-year-old self that I would start putting on a suit and working at a bank, I would have never believed you. But it was the most incredible opportunity at that time. It was the most incredible opportunity of my life, really, because I was so inspired by the idea of the connection of the financial sector and sustainability and the realization of the incredible impact that that nexus really had on the issues that we were facing. And I had a few other jobs. I always stayed in touch with Val Smith, who's the chief sustainability officer and and now my boss. And when a position opened up on her team about eight years ago, I came back, have always worked in sustainability, and it's been an incredible journey ever since. Look at you. Let's tell that 22-year-old self you're now head of uh, sustainability strategy. So so I'm going to be quite provocative. You know, the world and their wives are talking about ESG. You've both been involved in it a long time, and I know that City has been as well. Are you proud of City's track record in what they've done? Davida, you go first. I am incredibly proud of of City's journey. when I first came on, I was impressed to realize that City has been engaged in sustainability issues um, since the 90s in the sense of starting to look at how do we report on our environmental performance, our footprint, how do we start looking at these important issues and topics. And at that time, I think companies were really looking inward at their environmental impact. I think over the years, as City began to develop public-facing sustainability strategies based on all of the work that was going on internally for a number of years and really evolving to tell the story of their work, but also learn and collaborate with 
clients with investors, nonprofit organizations, government, et cetera, this whole group of stakeholders, and really embark on a journey within the sector, not so much just for city itself, but really looking at how does this work in the sector? How do we integrate sustainability, environmental, and social considerations across the board, and really being at the table for a number of really important developments in how we look at project finance, for example, with the equator principles and the green bond principles, et cetera. I think City has played a, a very important role in helping to engage and lead on, on very important issues. And all of that work, I think, has led us to where we are now with the recent announcement of our net zero plan and our first targets in energy and power. I think with Jane Frazier, our CEO, announcing this commitment on her first day last year on March 1st, are really thoughtful and I think our approach to disclosure and really the importance of transparency and and that engagement of sharing our journey and both our achievements and our challenges have really provided us, I think, the opportunity to really engage with our clients on their journeys in the fact of really taking where we have been, what we've been doing, and partnering with our clients as they look to transition as well. So I think this whole evolution has been quite a journey for City overall. Thank you. We'll come back to some of those themes. Harlan, I'd like your brief perspective on the backstory of City and are you proud of what City has achieved? Because I know that City has been involved in this whole area for a long time. But I also know you always say to me, it's a work in progress. So tell us about the past and, and what are the immediate challenges we face in the future? Yeah, thanks, Dorian. You know, from from my seat and kind of my partially related to my personal journey, right? I'm I'm a what they call a boomerang in the industry. I worked at City ten years ago, and I came back after a hiatus. I did go to grad school and 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 pursue my master's in public administration, and I went over to the think tank world and worked in innovative finance, and then came back to City. And I came back to City for the reasons that Davida mentioned, right? For the leadership that we've taken on the environmental side of things. When we think about you know what City's done on the environmental side, clearly it's been unbelievable, right? In terms of the leadership stances that we've taken, I look at our ESG report every year, and I have a very hard time summarizing. Everybody asks me for a summary; I have a hard time summarizing it. Um, I think our summary comes out to twenty six pages. That said, it's also a place where I've seen female leaders grow. I've seen a strong commitment to diversity. I've seen a strong commitment to our communities, right? The work that we're doing in affordable housing lending. These are all incredibly inspirational reasons to be in the world of finance and to really understand, to, to Davida's earlier point, right? That cross section between finance and social and environmental good, right? It's an extremely powerful place to be able to facilitate funding of some of these projects, new innovations capacity for companies to really make that change in the world, right? So be a really big part of that journey. So from that perspective, absolutely very proud of what we've done as an organization. That said, there's still a lot to do, right? And there's still a lot that we, and, and I'm sure Davida will attest to this as well, we do finance businesses that some would disagree with in terms of the environmental impact, right? When we think about decarbonization goals, we really need to think about a just transition. How do we transition and also not leave people behind? And that's kind of where 
organizations like ours sit, right? How do we make this transition? And if we stop financing a certain sector tomorrow, what are actually the negative externalities of that? And so how can we do something which overall reaches the ultimate goals we're trying to reach in a sensible fashion? So when you say challenges, I think some of the challenges are around reconciling positive and negative externalities. When we say, you know, we're proud of City from an ESG perspective, you know, one question I get a lot from investors is, give me some names of some ESG companies. There's no such thing, right? Everything has ESG attributes, positive and negative, and there's no real perfection. And I think that's kind of, you know, one of the challenges that exists is people become deeply personally invested the minute you say ESG. And it becomes very moral and values driven and very hard to reconcile when there is no perfection. When I hear you both speak, it makes me wonder if these three little letters do justice to it. Uh, Is ESG, and I'll keep with you, Harlan, on this, and I'd like to lead it to answer the same question. Is ESG even a helpful moniker for this whole area? Yeah, it's that's (laughs) that's a very interesting question. And yes and no, you know, it's an easy one. It's taken off because it's easy to say ESG. In some ways, I think the history has done a disservice to the acronym in the sense that the movement towards ESG and socially responsible investing, impact investing, sustainable investing, right? All of these interchangeable words came from a moral obligation that a subset of the population was feeling in terms of aligning their investments with their values. But that's changed, right? And ESG is no longer a nice to have. It's a need to have in the sense that climate risk is a very real risk. If you look at what the regulators are telling us, they're telling us you must stress test your books for climate risk. You must think about this in your lending, in who you're doing business with. Consumers are thinking about this in so many different angles, right? Not just because they they want to you know, save the turtles anymore, but it's really become a way of life. And it's become much more about survival, as we saw with the latest scientific recordings that were published over the course of last year, right? Yes, the good news is that we're all talking about it. And that's fabulous progress from wherever we we started. But Davida, do you think there's a better phrase? Do you think this is the right name for it? Well, I think it serves a very important purpose of helping to organize and categorize key issues that are important to investors. And the idea of being able to, I guess, apply some kind of apples to apples comparison, which I don't think that it necessarily accomplishes, is is needed right now as we are trying to understand, I think to Harlan's point, how a company addresses climate risk, how is a company looking at human capital, how is a company decarbonizing. And I think there's an argument where the E and the S really work together. The G is very separate. Very interesting to see how those three areas are combined. But I think that there is a really important purpose that it serves in order to really start to hold companies accountable for how they are addressing these different, really societal important aspects through this lens. And I think that's the whole thing, right? ESG is a lens. It's a lens in which to look through and understand. Lovely. Harlan, as as leading 
the whole area of investments for ESG. What changes are you seeing from your clients? You touched on this a little earlier that they kind of want perfection. Yeah, Dorian, you know, to, to answer part of your question first here, you know, one of the questions that we do get a lot, because it, it has historically, to some degree, been a niche part of people's portfolios, right? You've had, you know, when we think back to um, 30, 40 years ago, when people first started down this journey and, and created this kind of values alignment, it was the exclusion of certain sectors and companies in their portfolio to ensure that their values were aligned with them. This started with alcohol, gaming, and tobacco, right? Increasingly, we're, we're seeing requests from clients to exclude fossil fuels. So that's a full portfolio implementation. But investors who are really seeking ESG or sustainable investing, right? They're looking at a much more proactive approach today. And when we speak to clients about how to think about this in the form of portfolio construction, ESG is not an asset class. Um, as Davida said, it's a lens by which to look at your investments or your activities. And that lens can be applied to absolutely everything. We've seen tremendous growth in fixed income in terms of investable opportunities through green bonds, social bonds, now sustainability-linked bonds, which are evaluating specific KPIs that companies are measuring and reporting against on environmental and social objectives, as well as private markets. So private equity, if you look at the largest private equity managers, almost all of them have at least one impact fund on their platform. And that I suspect we will continue to see grow. Direct investing opportunities that we see in companies now that have taken their earlier decarbonization technologies, they've become commercial. They're now seeking capital to raise capital from private markets. They're able to access these markets. They're able to achieve the valuations they need to grow their businesses and attract the investors who, who are seeking to put their money into companies that, that are achieving these goals. So, you know, from that perspective, it, it is a full portfolio approach. For many clients, it is a journey though, right? They do like most investors when seeking something new will dip their toes in the water. And whether that's done at a specific asset class level or it's done because a specific investment speaks to them, that will vary investor by investor. Davida, as you've already said, 11 months ago, Jane's first day taking leadership of City globally, she made the net carbon announcement What's next? You know, how in your new role as head of strategy, what areas are you looking for in terms of making a difference? Because I guess increasingly a lot of these things become table stakes after a while, but City have got a great reputation of leading this area. How do you even go about working out what's next in terms of keeping City ahead? In terms of keeping City ahead, I mean, I think that the net zero commitment is going to keep us busy for quite a while. You know, right now, as a member of the Net Zero Banking Alliance under GFANS, we are really looking at how is the financial sector going to take on the net zero commitment. And we have just announced our interim targets, our 2030 targets for the energy and power sectors. But as part of our commitment, we now need to look at other sectors as well. And so these high emitting sectors and the trajectory and pathways that they will take in order to decarbonize and, and reach net zero by 2050 are critical to the overall global progress that needs to be made. So 
this work will keep us very busy. And I think it is a pretty incredible time in the financial sector and for City as well as this work is underway. I think that the collaboration and engagement internally, the work that is being taken on, I think as a sustainability professional, we've been waiting for this moment for a really long time. And to see it actually come to fruition in the way that it is, is so inspiring. And I think, you know, Harlan said it before, there is a lot of work to do. And we are really just at the beginning. So by no means are we anywhere towards the end. I think the idea is really that there are so many more people at the table and there's so much expertise and real passion and interest in developing solutions and that innovation is really thriving from that. I think we're seeing a lot of activity across asset classes to to Harlan's point earlier as well, to really look at how do we integrate these considerations in a progressive way to really measure and be able to apply metrics and understanding to how are we transitioning. I think the other focus is really looking at how city overall is addressing climate risk and, and how that applies to city's work and engagement with our clients, as well as on the opportunity side. So we have a $1 trillion sustainable finance commitment by 2030. And I think what I am really inspired by and excited by is the elevation and positioning that social impact has started to take. For a long time, I think environmental finance has been a major focus. I think environmental impact is a little bit easier to measure, and it's been going on for for a very long time. So I think with the tragedy of COVID that really helped to elevate the importance of social aligned to environmental and the potential and importance that that has to address our global climate issues. So for us, we now have a $500 billion social finance target as part of that $1 trillion in addition to the environmental finance. I think that activity also is something that we're really focused on collectively at the bank. So we definitely have a lot to keep us busy, I would say. You mentioned performance and obviously things need to be measured, but um, Harlan, are performance measures helpful always? How do you score what is and what isn't an ESG compliant product or service? You're giving me all the hard questions today, huh? Absolutely. So performance is one of those questions that comes up in nine and a half out of 10 conversations, call it. I think that what's interesting kind of, and this alludes back to some of what Davida was saying as well, in terms of how you evaluate whether or not a company is doing well or good from an ESG perspective and what that then translates in terms of investment performance. And when we think about kind of how companies do business, right? It's almost intuitive that companies that are better stewards of the environment, that have strong policies around their labor practices, that have really good governance over the long run, at the very least, incur lower degrees of risks on the downside, right? Less likelihood of regulatory fines, um, less likelihood of litigation. So over the long run, they have better risk-adjusted returns. The challenge is that there are two challenges, really. One is the benchmarking challenge, whereby an ESG investment, to the earlier comments in terms of there's no real such thing as an ESG company or a single ESG investment. ESG investments can exist in every asset class. So the first challenge is benchmarking against the appropriate benchmark. And the understanding of if your definition of ESG is excluding five, six, seven sectors, 
you're fundamentally going to look different than the benchmark, right? So are you actually benchmarking yourself appropriately on an investment strategy standpoint? The other challenge is there are good and bad managers in, in every type of strategy, right? For, for many years, people have been arguing against active management and for passive management, right? We won't get into that argument here today, but in the same vein, a portfolio manager who is taking in relevant ESG data to make investment decisions, today there are still gaps in some of that data, right? Reported gaps from companies. There are different ways of evaluating that data and understanding and applying what is financially material to your decision-making process. And so performance varies. It's easy to say that you're expected to have better risk-adjusted returns. It's easy to say there's no give up on performance, but you really need to be discerning about what the investment is that you're making. And that's where the due diligence process is very important, right? And that's where our teams come in, in terms of the due diligence, is they're evaluating how a strategy is expected to perform from like an investment due diligence standpoint, as well as their integration of sustainability factors into their investment process to avoid things like greenwashing risk, right? So the way I see it, I think there are opportunities for outsized returns in ESG, right? There are new clean tech technologies. There are companies that are creating solutions for everything from clean cook stoves to affordable and accessible healthcare, where there is an opportunity for significant outperformance. But again, they need to be benchmarked against the appropriate asset class and they need to be evaluated investment by investment. These are investments at the end of the day, right? They're looking to achieve positive ENS outcomes in some cases, but they are investments. And I think embedded within your question there, right, is also the evaluation of what an investor's sustainability objectives are and how they match up with what the investment actually is, right? So that real definition of, do I think about ESG from a risk mitigation standpoint? So my earlier comments, right, on a risk-adjusted return, are companies taking into account things like climate risk, stranded asset risk, all of that kind of risk associated with ESG? Or am I seeking out real impact? Do I want to invest in affordable housing? Do I want to see an increase in the number of affordable housing units? Do I want to see an increase in the number of people educated or healthcare services delivered or carbon emissions reduced? So setting those objectives is an incredibly important part of the journey. And then evaluating investments and doing the due diligence, both on how an investment is expected to perform in terms of returns, as well as in terms of the ESG outcomes, call it, right? The sustainability outcomes. So, you know, it does require a bit more work. And then for investors to really be diligent around who they're working with, overseeing investments for all the traditional reasons, right? We can't just throw out the fact that these are investments, right? We still need to have ongoing monitoring in terms of how the investment is performing over time. So these are critical questions, really important in the context of an investment discussion. One thing that we remind our clients about all the time, right? It's not just about setting your sustainability objectives. It's setting your sustainability objectives within the context of a set of investment objectives, ultimately, because it's not just the risk and return profile of the investment. It's the risk and return profile of the investment in the context of your own time horizon, liquidity needs, risk requirements, right? So certainly it adds another dimension to the established investment guidelines that most investors set forth before putting together a portfolio. And that's where, you know, it's helpful to have those conversations and, and to really seek out someone who can provide that level of in-depth advice. 
If I could just add, Jorian, just um, and jump in. I mean, I think that is why improved data is so important and critical, and why for all of these net zero commitments and the need for real metrics to measure, I think, and contribute to what Harlan's talking about, in addition to those qualitative conversations to really understand the impacts um, and investments and other financial products and services. I think we're really needing to understand certain things from companies across the board, including City, for our own investors. And I think that's why we're seeing such an increased scrutiny and focus on that kind of disclosure and seeing things like the EU requiring TCFD reporting and looking to see what will happen with the SEC and climate disclosures. But the importance of this data will really help to inform these decisions and help us to, I think, really achieve what we've all set out to achieve. Because we can't wait for the data. We have to move. We have to get started it is not an excuse for no action, but we, we, we need the data to get where we need to go. If nothing else, right, 2021 has shown the power of shareholder activism. We've seen the greatest number of ESG-related topics on proxy ballots. We've had a significant amount of engagement in that. I think the one story that has now kind of been beaten to death a little bit, but most people are familiar with at this point, was the board turnover at Exxon related to how proxies were voted in favor of more client-friendly board members, right? And so that obviously feeds into the the G piece that uh, sometimes gets left out of the ESG conversation, but also obviously in terms of informing a strategy for a company going forward. Now, that said, from an investor standpoint, investors meaning those that are holding the public equities or the bonds of companies, increasingly we're seeing across the board asset managers engaging with their portfolio companies. On the on the strategies that are labeled or considered ESG or sustainable strategies, that's been the case for a number of years. But even not, all investors are now starting to feel that you know climate at the bare minimum is going to have an impact on the performance of a company in the long run. So they want to know the net zero plans. They want to know what commitments to carbon emissions reductions companies have in place, what they're doing in terms of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and their human capital. So this has become kind of the norm at this point, and it is seen in public markets as a critical part of this ESG journey for investors to achieving their sustainability outcomes. So I think there's a lot of value in that engagement. There's a lot of skepticism in terms of how much of that engagement actually leads to the full change. But if you think about it in the context of all of the other pressures on every single company, right? It's not just the shareholders, but it's also their consumers. And so all of that, all of those pieces, it's also regulators, all of those pieces of of engagement with companies is driving or accelerating the adoption of better ESG practices at almost every company. So for for companies who aren't talking about what they're doing, I mean, my view is that they will be left behind who aren't adapting better environmental and labor practices. Having both been involved in this world for a long time, are you optimistic? Are you excited about the acceleration of progress in this area? I'm incredibly excited. I mean, in the sense, and I am hopeful. Um, I think. It's tempered hope, I guess, in that we have so much to do and so far to go. But I I do think we've hit a really interesting milestone or, or inflection point where 
there's finally, I think, this groundswell um, and understanding that, you know, no one company, no one government, no one can do this alone. So I think that collaborative approach that I'm seeing more and more is really such an important driver. And I think really the move to understand the connections of different issues, so such as biodiversity and the conversations that are really having around the connection between climate and and biodiversity. I think, you know, what we were talking about before, the social aspects and really looking at diversity there, human capital, what is happening in local communities and that connection to environmental impact as well. I think just the, the connection of these dots and the collaboration that's happening incites my hope, but I I think we're nowhere near where we need to get to. So I think it's balanced in that way. Yeah, I would say tempered excitement on my part as well, where I see a significant amount of opportunity. And the reason why I came back to the private wealth world with this focus on ESG and sustainability is because a lot of capital that is required to actually see these changes is held by private individuals, right? The giving pledge was created in 2010. So we're a decade out from there. Some of the trends that we're seeing is from those giving pledge signatories is a commitment towards aligning their investment capital in in the way that their philanthropic capital is aligned. And to me, that's very, very powerful. So when you think about the billions of trillions of dollars that are held by private individuals, if they do start to move their capital, which we're seeing is happening, in a direction to finance some of the newer technologies to deal with the environmental issues that we're dealing with, to deal with some of the humanitarian issues that we're dealing with, it will far surpass what governments alone can do. From that perspective, I think it's incredibly exciting to work with individual investors who can direct their capital pretty easily, right? They have generally control over their capital where they can direct investments in a much more efficient manner than, say, a large institutional investor could. And they're really looking to this space. For many of these investors, they have large diversified portfolios where they can allocate some of that capital in areas where they can take more risk, where they can take some more illiquidity. And that's really exciting from my perspective, right? As we've seen the number of investment products really increase and the ability for this capital to start to flow in that direction, I think that will really kind of be a game changer over the next few years. Brilliant. I have learned so much from this. On our next podcast, we're planning to talk about the new world of work, which is changing around us as we record podcasts in our front rooms all across the world. And there's an intersection really, isn't there, between the changing working patterns and the the world of sustainability and ESG. Have you got any observations to provide us a, a link for the next episode? Is there anything related to the changing world of work that is going to help what you do? I absolutely think so. I think that as we start to see jobs in certain sectors, you know, in highly intensive sectors go away, the fact that now there are more opportunities to work remotely, there are more opportunities to be educated remotely. This kind of online education, I think, has also changed the way in which people can access new opportunities for work. I think for women, it has significantly changed the game. Remote increased flexibility in terms of keeping women in the workforce longer. I mean, obviously we've seen some hiccups in that uh, through especially the first part of COVID, but I think as we come out of this and we start to see greater opportunities for remote work, certainly, you know, I think more diverse parts of our population will be able to participate in the labor force. Interesting. Davida? 
I have something on, on my mind just because it, it's actually come up this past week. I think an important topic is related to employee engagement with regard to sustainability and that connection to your employer and that community. We've definitely hired people on our team during COVID that have never been in the office and definitely have not had that in-office team experience. So I think we have to start thinking about that kind of engagement with employees and that mentorship opportunities, the, the collaboration, it all has to shift. So I think it's really interesting to think about how do you maintain or develop new ways for that connectivity among employees and that ability for them when they are passionate about not only sustainability, but other really important issues to a company, how can they still contribute to the success around those particular topics within their company? So much food for thought. Um, I want to thank you because we've run out of time, but I want to thank you so much for joining us and sharing your thoughts. You've certainly proven the theory that if you get some smart, informed minds just openly discussing a topic, good things happen. Thank you very much, Davida and Harlan. Thank you. Thank you. The views expressed herein are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views of City Global Markets, Inc. or its affiliates. All opinions are subject to change without notice. Neither the information provided nor any opinion expressed constitutes a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. The expressions of opinion are not intended to be a forecast of future events or a guarantee of future results.